This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. Welcome to episode 43 of the Three Lions podcast. My name's Russell Osborne. Well, the last episode gathered a lot of momentum, didn't it? And warmth for Coco the dog. So thank you for listening. If you don't know what we mean by Coco the dog and you've not heard it yet, threelionspodcast.com. You'll find it there. Have a listen. Give us a thumbs up. Now, coming up on this episode, we conveniently follow up on that shirts episode with Shaky. By this time, talking with Glenn Isherwood from England Football Online. He'll be working on that book too, and he tells us more about that. He also tells us about the England crest and a whole manner of other England-related information. That's coming very, very soon. But first, let's just catch up on what's been happening. Following up on the Nations League tickets that I mentioned, the Supporters Travel Club then advised members to register with UEFA's ticket portal uh, by the 22nd of January to ensure that you're all able to purchase tickets. Obviously, that date has since passed, but the amount of people who all decided UEFA's website is rather hard to navigate was surely no coincidence. Ticket sales then commenced and everyone appears to have them in the bag for Travel Club members. And I think by now, Joe Public, you can get yours too. €30 for a Cat 3 semi-ticket and a Super Sunday ticket too is great value. So you won't hear me say this too often, but nice one, UEFA. Just keep working on your website. Following on from his OBE, Harry Kane won the England Supporters Player of the Year for 2018 for the second successive year, with Dominic Calvert-Lewin winning the Under-21 award. And talking of the Under-21s, two matches have been announced for those guys. Thursday the 21st of March, they take on Poland at Bristol City's Ashton Gate. And the 26th of March, they're in action again, that's a Tuesday, this time against Germany at Bournemouth's Vitality Stadium. Both games, if you book early, are fantastic value. A quid for under-16s and a tenner for adults. FA.com for more info on those. Right, time to get on to this episode's feature. I'd like to welcome to the Three Lions podcast is Glenn Isherwood from englandfootballonline.com, the website. Glenn, hello there. Hello. How are you? I'm pretty good, thanks. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Now, your name came up in the last podcast we had, episode 42, where we were talking shirts with Shaky. That should have been a title for the uh, for the podcast, I think, Shirts with Shaky. But uh, your name came up because you are helping Shaky with the the forthcoming book about England shirts. Is that correct? It is. Yeah, I'm sorry I don't have a snoring dog in the background to entertain you. But, <laughs> but yes, I have been working with Shaky. We've been talking about it for a number of years now. 
and it's it's all starting to come together and it ties in nicely uh, with the website that I run with Chris Goodwin called englandfootballonline.com. A website that I look at on a, uh, a regular basis and I'm sure many others do as well. Yeah, it's, um, it's taken up uh, an increasing amount of, of my life over the past 15 years. It came about, or my involvement came about, I, I mean, I've always had a, a big interest in the England team, going right back to the 1970 World Cup, when, of course, we went into that tournament as world champions. And on my eighth birthday, we lost to West Germany in the quarterfinals. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, that sort of ruined the, the day for me a bit. I've, I've always followed England from that. Point. I think un- unlike club teams that have their own lots of historians and books written about them, I think England has been a bit neglected over the years. The, la- the last few years, there's, there's been plenty of books written about why, why are we so bad and why do we constantly fail. But the facts themselves have been poorly represented. And I think that that's what this website set out to do. And it's now got thousands of pages and I, I came along with an interest in the shirts, really. I, in the 70s, I, like a lot of people, a lot of kids, discovered Admiral kits. The England kit changed. It, it was really interesting to see what, what teams were wearing and what identity there was behind that. And fast forward to about 2004, with the internet, I, w- I was looking to see if there was a record of what kits were worn in which games and I I stumbled across this website and found that they'd gone back to 1990 uh, and I thought well I can take it back to 70 and that's maybe about as far as I can go yeah uh, and and I got involved and we, we produced that but then started to think well could we go back further and at that time the internet was really growing to include things like newsreels and, and more photo agencies uh, so the information was out there you just had to study it so I worked out what, what manufacturers produced the kits, and we've actually taken it back to 1872 now, the very beginning. Wow. That's supposed to have taken a, a lot of research to go back that far. Yeah, and I, I, I took a trip to Wembley, go in their library, and I found out from their uh, FA Council minutes where they bought the first set of shirts from. Uh, that was actually in 1880 from an outfitters in London. And it, it's it's details like that that you can I can add to the to the website and it really brings it to life and and then the involvement with Shaky I mean if you've seen the books that he's produced on Arsenal and then recently Spurs there are there are lots of stories behind the scenes with uh, sportswear manufacturers from kit men from the players themselves and he's sort of added another dimension to it so so I've been logging the what where and when that kits have been worn and he's now telling me why from his network of, of people from having worked in football. So it, this is what's uh, leading us towards producing an England shirt book that should hopefully answer a lot of the, the questions that people have had over the years around why they've chosen or why things have gone wrong. What Could, could you give us a flavour of, of what's gone wrong? I mean, I, I can't think off the top of my head what, what may have gone wrong with an England shirt. Yeah, well, to, to the casual eye... It's very difficult to to spot, but if if you're really into this, if you look at the 1982 World Cup when England wore, if you remember the Admiral kits, red, white, and blue, yes, uh, the salt the, across the shoulders. For the first game against France, they didn't have Admiral logos on there. For the second game, they suddenly appeared. 
For the third game, they had logos in the in the numbers on the back. For the fourth game against West Germany, they, they wore the red change kit, but it was a different design to the one they'd worn in the first game. It had an extra white band across the chest. Oh, right. So, I mean, it, that's not against the rules of football, uh, which, which are very basic, really, indeed. Growing up, you think all players look exactly the same. But mm. when, when you look at these details, they aren't. And lots of weird reasons behind all that. Ah, so that's the sort of thing that will be revealed, hopefully, in, in the book then. Yeah. I mean, the, the kind of thing where, I mean, if you remember the 1987 Cup final and Tottenham, where half the team wearing Holston, the sponsor, and the other half not. And there's, that's right. there's, there's a fascinating story about that that's in the Spurs shirt book that's come out. So it's, it's things like that that we want to bring out and make it really interesting. It's not just a statistical account. Well, far from it. It's the uh, connections and mistakes that, that that I think will amuse and uh, interest people. Okay, so that's that's how you or how you met Shaky, I guess, and through the through the shirts. Yeah. And I guess that was as you say how the website grew from your interest off the shirts. Yeah, I mean the the focal point of the website really is the games and the players. So Chris Goodwin who jointly runs the website with me, he he manages all the, the summaries. I mean, every match has its own detailed summary. Summary is probably the wrong word because it's a very detailed report. You've got who televised it, when it took place, attendances. If you look at old history books, they seem to stop at the team lineups. We take it a stage further. We check all the old history books and find out that a lot of them are wrong and, and people have copied from other history books uh, you know, the same mistakes. But we, we go back to the source and, and rebuild it with as many different sources as we can. So in, in these match summaries, you've got all the assistant referees, fourth officials, you've got their ages and things like that. And and then in the teams, you've got the ages of the players, the birth dates, the clubs they're with, the unused substitutes, which don't often get reported. And for each of the England players, because it's an encyclopedia, you click on that and that goes to that player's own biography page. So there, Chris has done a phenomenal job in finding birth registrations and wedding registrations from old censuses, building up a picture of the whole life, not just their football career. You know, when they died as well, what they did after after they played football. And there are some bizarre stories in there. Uh, I was reading one yesterday. You might want to look this up. It's a player called George Elliott. Um, oh, right. He played for England in about 1920. And about five years after he retired, uh, he was involved in a hit-and-run accident uh, in which a child was killed. Oh, quite, wow. quite a dark story. And he was up for manslaughter, uh, but, he, but he got off. If you read the stories behind it, I'll leave you to make your own judgments as to what happened. And that's George Elliott. Yes. Okay, well, I'll be looking into that one later. I've actually got the the website up as we speak, and I'm looking at at the very first game. You mentioned the the very first game in 1872. Yeah, and there is, as you say, the the England team there. We've got goalkeeper Robert Barker. You can click on his name. It tells you his age. He was 25 and 164 days, and his birth date of the 19th of June. His position, his teams, Hertfordshire Rangers and Wanderers FC, his appearances. And going back this far, how do you get all this information? I know it's incredible, really, that that that's all available, you know, in the the public domain. I mean, 
you do have to do some quite a lot of digging. I mean, you'll see references to a lot of censors there, you know, going back to 1851. And he's got, got the address of the, the player and the schools he went to. And <laughs> wow. who, who looks at this sort of information? Do, do you see the, the stats of people looking at that? I'm not, I'm not sure about the individual players. Uh, I think their own families are quite interested in it. Yeah. And they often write to us to, to offer more information or tell us when we've got things wrong. Uh, right. which, which is another good motivates you really to to get it right as well and, and correct the errors of the past. Chris has amended a lot of histories where players references it's just not the same person. I think there was even one player that he couldn't find any reference to at all, which leads you to the conclusion that he was probably just playing under a pseudonym. Okay, but that was that was just one player. Just about everybody else, he's found births, deaths, and and all the details about them. It must take up, well, you're constantly looking at it, then I guess yourself and Chris. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, the advantage of it being a website is that you you can tweak it all the time. You know, it's not a history cast in stone. You put the details down there, somebody comes up with something that corrects it. So you just update it and, yeah, move on. So you keep going back to pages. Something that I... I've picked up on and, and it's it's sort of works in conjunction, I guess, with the shirts that we spoke about with with Shaky last time is the emblem and the crest. Is that something you could tell me about? Because obviously we know the, the phrase free lines on the shirt has become quite a, a phrase that everyone knows now. Yeah. Yeah. This was one of my projects because chris concentrates on the games and and the players biographies and i i sort of do the more quirky related features on different elements of england i mean one of them is england's television appearances going going right back to the beginning of tv another one is the amateur team that a lot of people don't realize that england had an amateur team in the last century for three quarters of the last century and it started off as high as as big a profile as as the England national team because it was an amateur game to begin with so the, these are sidelines and and the emblems yeah I, I wanted to take this back to where does it come from where do where do the lions come from you know because lions are not known to roam around England uh, no <laughs> thankfully <laughs> but they they did cover a lot of western Europe apparently 10,000 years ago and Biblical figures describe themselves as kings and that have statues of, of lions, you know, like we've got in Trafalgar Square. Mm, yeah. So, it, so it was always in there that the lion and and the king, uh, there was a connection there. William the Conqueror brought the uh, the arms, uh, brought the lions to England through the House of Normandy. There's there's quite a, a detailed history around it over the next few centuries. And Richard the Lionheart, I think, is the one that finally brought together three lions. And then the United Kingdom came together and we got we had a royal coat of arms with three lions on it. So it, it was probably an obvious thing, really, for an England national team. Uh, also, the England cricket team, I think, also had three lions as well. From the very first game, the, the emblem had three lions with a crown on top. Right. Uh, and we're, we're not quite sure who was responsible for producing that because i mean the kits at first were homegrown affairs you know each player was responsible for his own kit uh, and we assumed that included uh, the badge as well but i don't know if there was any central point 
it wasn't until 1880 that the FA started providing shirts for the England team. So maybe the badge came with it then. But they stuck with this this old style badge until 1949. Now, I've suggested that maybe they were trying to get away from the cricket badge because it was very similar to the cricket one with a crown on top. So so we ended up with the the current three lions emblem that, that we all know and love, three navy blue lions or sometimes royal blue and the 10 Tudor roses, I think, that that people don't don't notice as much. But there are Tudor roses in amongst the lions. And these are symbolic of the end of the War of the Roses when the houses of York and Lancaster came together. Then we got College of Arms, actually. It was registered with the College of Arms by the FA. And we've had pretty much the same emblem since then. It's It's changed in colours a few times, but uh, we still come back to the same basic design. There are three lions basically on on top of each other, aren't they? There is a Latin phrase for that. Okay. Ghouls in pale, three lions, pass on, guard on, or... And it means the red, they're on a central vertical axis, uh, head to the left, body horizontal, three legs on the ground, right front leg stretched forward, etc. <laughs> oh, right. So it's like an official way of actually presenting the yeah. the crest the lions um with those and and you say about those those 10 tudor roses there's three on above the top lion three above the the second and and three above the the bottom the third line and then one at the the base of the crest and as you yeah. say those those tudor roses people you kind of know they're there but you don't really pick up on them so much as no. as the lions mm. But you, you would soon notice them if they weren't there, I guess, wouldn't we? Yeah, I think you would. And there's there's been a couple of instances, as you say, about the, the colours have changed, like the, the blues have been either a, a navy blue or a royal blue. But there's been a couple of times where, in more recent times, where the whole crest has changed colour, hasn't there? There's been a red one, there's been a gold one. Yeah. Uh, and he's... I'm sure there's reasons for them, but it just doesn't feel the same, does it? No, not to me. I mean, I did speak to somebody at the College of Arms, and they said officially they're not allowed to change that design, but um, that's got lost somewhere in the in the year between. <laughs> oh dear, someone's uh, someone's job may have been on the line there. <laughs> so, I mean, the website there's there's so many things that we we could talk about. Just looking at it here, it's obviously the Nations League coming up. There's the World Rankings, FIFA World Rankings, recent results, uh, penalties, goal scorers as well. Every goal scorer that's ever put the ball in the net for England is is mentioned on here or, or is acknowledged on here as well, aren't they? That's right, yeah. And there should be a decent description of every goal as well that we've, uh, we've taken from reports of the time. Obviously, You've taken those reports from, to say, back in 1872 when that first one was reported. But our last game would have been, I'm trying to think here, was that Spain or Croatia? Would have been yeah. Croatia at home. The the reports, do you write them yourselves or do you take them from, from elsewhere? Uh, we've got a writer, Mike Payne, who produced a, a book on England that detailed all the reports from post-war up to 1993. So I think he's been doing them for something like the past 10 years or so for us. So it's brilliant that he he's doing what he's good at. He's he's continue, He's sort of extending his book 
uh, on the website and we're, we're putting his old reports in there as well so it, it's giving us it, it's not complete yet but it's just growing all the time those summaries I mean all, all the most recent ones are complete I think and it's probably the 50s, 60s, 70s that need a bit of work on them. But the, but that's happening. I guess with the likes of with YouTube that really help, you said about the, the internet being a, a big help. Do you sit and study videos on YouTube? Yes, I have done. Old newsreels have been particularly helpful. You know, be, before television featured games or, or games that have been lost TV recordings. Frustratingly, a lot of them are lost or they recorded over them games in the 50s and 60s. I mean, it's unbelievable to think of that happening nowadays, but it yeah. But newsreels filled a few of those gaps. I mean, England games, a lot of the post-war games, 50s, 60s, used to appear at, at the cinema two or three minutes. And for me, that, that was brilliant because I could identify a lot of the the styles. I, I have a thing about identifying the font on the back of a shirt, uh, which tells me whether it's Umbro or Bukta. <laughs> okay, so just from from what the numbers look like. Yeah. Uh, wow, and you can you can distinguish those, can you? Yeah, I mean Umbro in particular had the same font style from the fifties right through to the mid eighties, and I, I find when when I've recognised the number and with with the help of somebody like Shakey, who's actually provided shirts, and they can look at the the label on the collar, uh, it's it's been correct in every case. It's amazing that these things are are able to be picked up on. And and do you think do you think Umbro are aware of of that uh, they've been putting them in the same font? No, I I don't think so. To be honest, and uh, it's it's only over the last few years I've come to realise this. Another weird thing that they did in the fifties. Well, maybe it's not so weird. It's understandable. They they started that decade wearing black socks, navy shorts, and I think black socks because they always wore a black number when they wore black black socks. But if they played a team that wore blue or black socks themselves, England switched to red socks as a second choice, and the number on the back of the shirt was red. Really? Yeah. But uh, how how would you have noticed that? Because I'm assuming that videos would have been black and white then would they? Uh, yes yeah most of them the red is usually slightly lighter so it's distinguishable when watching footage yeah i mean you've got to be careful because some photographs in certain eras sort of change i mean generally at that time blue looked darker than red if you look at another era that's not always the case yeah other other people that have studied different photography i'm thinking of historical kits have you ever seen that website they've done yes. a lot more of this on interpreting black and white pictures and darks and lights sometimes appear the wrong way around what i've observed with england kits has been borne out when we've actually got the shirts so it's not when you get until you get the shirts that you know for certain of course yeah oh wow that's it's that that amazing that these things can be deciphered like that we know that all the national media outlets use facts and statistics from here clive tilsley the itv's top commentator uh, he's got a lot of his england facts from us and he's been in contact with us on a number of occasions the mail on sunday bbc website and we do appear in a lot of books as well 
one guy, uh, James Corbett, wrote a book called England Expects, and he described the website as a historian's dreamland with all manner of fascinating takes on the national team. So it's really nice when people say stuff like that. Yeah, well, I concur. There's, there's a lot of information here. It's, it's just a historical mine hole. Like you can just get lost in here following a player and then following the, the team that he played for and, and just searching back through various yeah. games. It, it really is a uh, an interesting website. And, and you say it started up in, was it 2004? Uh, that's when I joined. It's actually been going since about 1999. I think it's the our 20th anniversary. Uh, this year oh any any plans for uh for it <laughs> no well i know we've got the Eng- england's thousandth games uh later this year so uh, and maybe we should uh, sort of combine with that somehow why not yeah so and chris goodwin is is your other partner in crime if that's yes. a, a suitable way of, of of describing him uh apologies chris how how did you two meet do you do this together well he he lives in the northeast i live in west yorkshire so we, we don't get together that often. So you're doing uh, it remotely? Yeah. I mean, he, he tends to work on those uh, match reports. And, and there's a hell of a lot of work before a game as well. I mean, when squads are announced and getting all that background information and then updating dozens and dozens of pages after the game. So he does the, that and the biographies. And I'm, I'm usually working on some other history that I, I, I've built up that's some relation to the England team, like the penalty shootouts I went into in a lot of detail. And that all came about from somebody just writing in and asking, you know, how many penalties have we actually saved in shootouts? So I thought, all right, to do this properly, let's go back to every single game and, and look at who took every penalty, describe it in detail, you know, whether it was left foot, right foot, side foot, hammered, whatever, how it was saved, every player's background, their age, how many penalties they've scored before, how many goals they've scored that season, how many games they've played in that competition. And all can be used for, well, for other people to to analyse, really. But also in the context of the game. So, you know, who did you think was favourite at the end of extra time to win that shootout? And then if, for example... Chris Waddle hadn't missed that last penalty in 1990, who would have taken the next one? You know, the, the things that aren't generally known. And then yeah. I also like to write my own theory as to why England won a penalty shootout or why they lost it. And of course, Colombia last year was a was a wonderful end to a, a nightmare that seemed like it was never going to end. Yeah, I bet going through all of those penalty shootouts wasn't the uh, wasn't the best job to be doing. It would have been quite depressing, wouldn't it? Oh, well, lost it another was. one. Lost another one. Yeah, I had to leave it for a few months before I could look at it and watch the video again. It's <laughs> especially when you knew what was coming up. Yeah, that's it. You just got to do it objectively and and yes. look at it and just uh, let's get the facts down. But it it was nice to write about Gareth Southgate's success in that against Colombia because he sort of started all all that off unwittingly with his miss against Germany in in 96 and then so many people have tried to resolve this problem and then he comes along with a young side so they don't have the the previous baggage of penalty shootouts and that refreshing new attitude and it worked and I couldn't be more pleased for him Uh, and the whole country yeah I mean we talk about 
Gareth Southgate here. There's got uh, on on the homepage of the website, there is a section dedicated or a page dedicated to Gareth Southgate. There's quotes from him, his played one, drawn, lost success rate, the fact that he's now MBE, little things like that that would have had to have been updated straight away, where he was born, his playing career. It really is a real in-depth Gareth Southgate Wikipedia page. As well as the website, England Football Online, you yourself are an author as well, aren't you? Two, am I right in saying two books to your name? Yes, both were on uh, Wembley Stadium. I, I think also growing up in, in the 70s, I mean, England internationals obviously being played at Wembley, a very grand theatre, and the cup finals as well. I used to love watching the FA Cup finals. And I thought it'd be interesting to build my own record of who'd played at Wembley. So combining the cup finals and the internationals. And the more I dug into that, the more I realised there was far more. And it wasn't just football either, you know, Olympic Games, boxing matches and all all manner of interesting things, the concerts as well. And I I really got into that. And eventually I had enough. I thought, well, I should try and get this published. I got four volumes by that stage. And it was just the fact that the stadium was about to close when they announced that they were going to build a new one uh, that was a good time for publishers to get involved so i did a book on fa cup finals which is a nice glossy coffee table book photos and memorabilia in there and uh, stories about players and and also teams that didn't quite get their semi-final losers and then after that uh did another paperback which was the complete record of wembley so that allowed me to bring in all the england internationals and some of the really obscure stuff that was more your uh well the complete record as it as it says more a statistical history but with all match reports in as well right so so that again i suppose has been an england interest that's that's led me to england football online and then the england shirt book as well they're they're all tied in together yeah well, I uh, I think we should. Um, we haven't actually done an episode on on Wembley as such, especially the old stadium. And um, I think maybe if if you're up for it, we'll have a a future chat about Wembley. Yeah, that sounds like fun. But let's let's put something in the diary and speak again because there's a few a few months where there are no games coming up. So that'd be I think that'd be more than interesting. But but going back to the to the website England Football Online anyway. If people want to to speak with you, are you, are you open to to talking about that? Uh, yeah, uh, we're on Facebook. I mean, I, I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook. I'm usually on there around the time of tournaments, which is when there's there's a massive interest in yeah website at, at that time. It's like people become England fans for two or three weeks every two years, which which is a bit frustrating. But you know that that's the way things are. So we we tend to get a lot of communication at at that point but uh they can email us as as well i mean we're, we're always keen to talk to people who, who've got extra information or they can tell us where we've got things wrong and we do get a lot of or, or the occasional communications from families of ex-players or or friends or people just trying to find information these are generally about players who didn't quite make it as an international i mean for an example, I found out from, from one person writing to me that there was an England grammar schools team in the late 1950s. Okay. Which I, I was totally unaware of, but England used to play Scotland 
every year. I mean, I know about the schoolboy internationals under yeah. 15s, but but this was another level of uh, schoolboy football. And we we end up looking for FA 11s as well. There were there's been lots of unofficial games which we've logged those on the the website as well so they're not labeled as england they're labeled as fa11 and I people see. who've been involved in that game and relatives quite often don't know about this or they don't know where to look to get the information so uh we go off on uh detective <laughs> to find these things with your magnifying glass yeah <laughs> and people are very grateful it's it's nice uh, that they appreciate this kind of service no, I, bet. I mean, it's, it must be quite rewarding to when you find the information and, and you can go back to these people. Yeah, it? it is. Definitely. Yeah. The under 23s, under 21s and, you know, youth players, we've got all those team lineups. Which must take quite a uh, a lot of work as well. Yeah, because, uh, again, these are things that don't make the history books. They might appear in a, a Rothmans football yearbook for that year and maybe an FA yearbook. But So after that, they're sort of lost, you know. Nobody how, wants to reproduce that information. And how far back does the the under nineteens? How far or when did they start playing? Under nineteens, I think, is something like nineteen ninety. It's it's relatively recent that the oh, okay. Well, the the first youth team was under eighteen, and then I think the under eighteens got changed to under nineteen because they introduced an under seventeen and then an under twenty, and it's they've moved them moved them around a few times. Well, wasn't there a B team? Was there an England B team? Yeah, B team has played on occasion. That started in the 50s, ran into the 60s, and then they sort of lost interest. And at various times, there's been an odd B team game. I think the last one was 2007. What's the point of a B team? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just just asking. I, I guess it was intended to be a sort of trial team. I mean, there's been lots of trial games as well. That's sort of an area that we haven't, covered we could do it in more detail trial matches they used to have north and north versus south in right going right back to the 1880s and then they had england versus the rest in the 1930s there was i think england versus the rest in 1935 they experimented with two referees okay well who who are the rest the the rest of the world or i know they've played the rest of the world teams no um possible or potential england players Oh, I see. So a, a, a picked England eleven against yeah potential players. Yeah, but I the, see. but this was the era when we had selection committees. So I, I think now it's it's always one person picking the team. I guess you don't need that. They, they get all the information that they need without having to stage trial matches. Oh, interesting. I didn't wasn't aware of that. How that happened? Team GB. Yeah, so that was the Olympic teams. Olympics were purely for amateurs, and that we first took part in 1908, but it was the England amateur team that played. Now, at various Olympics over the years, they they tried to get Scottish, Welsh and Irish players involved. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. This, This has got a page of its own as well. And... When it got to the 50s, you were finding these amateur teams were up against Eastern European state-sponsored players. So they, they were effectively full national teams. So they, they couldn't really compete on a, on a level footing. And eventually, I mean, the amateur football 
was abolished. You just had professionals and, and semi-professionals. And the Olympics sort of evolved a bit, but uh, to include some professionals and under-23s, I think it is now. But we'd also got to that stage that you couldn't have a Great Britain team anymore because Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland wanted to maintain their own individual identities. Of course, the one exception to that was when London hosted the Olympics in 2012. Yeah. Uh, when we had a Great Britain team that had a few Welsh players in there. And there's still talk of it happening again in the future, but I don't think it jeopardises their individual identities. Is it more of a FIFA thing that their FIFA put lay down the, the rules for it? Yeah, well, FIFA consistently say it's not going to damage your individual reputations, but I, I, I don't think particularly the Scottish FA are convinced by that. Yeah, the aren't the women's team more open to it? Yes, yeah, I think they are. They've been talking about maybe a GB team going to the next Olympics or the one after that. And the Olympics is bigger in women's football. I think they're, they're really missing out on a key tournament if if they don't compete in the Olympics. Uh, so it'd be nice to find for them to find a way to to get a GB team in there. Well, speaking of women, I guess as well, are the women included? on the website no not yet we haven't had a request there are there are a few areas women included that if if people did want it then i i'd I'd be happy to start work on that another one is the football league representative teams that uh, don't play anymore but they were sort of the england team in another name for for a large part of it for example, Alf Ramsey, when he was England manager, they also gave him the Football League representative team to manage. And they played the Scottish League and the Irish League every year. And it was just another England team for him to manage. Right. I wasn't aware he had that role as well. Yeah. It's a rich and varied history. Isn't it just? Isn't it just? Yeah. No, you do You do a great job. Um, and, and I thank you for it. Uh, as again, that, that website is England Football Online. Glenn, thank you very much. and. Let's talk again. Let's talk Wembley. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much. There, thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. Go and have a look around englandfootballonline.com. I can assure you, you'll find plenty of interesting facts to tell your mates. Thanks again for Glenn for his time. As before, please do spread the word, like, subscribe and review at your usual podcast download place. You can find us on Twitter at Three Lions Podcast. Search also on Facebook. We're on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and also threelionspodcast.com. Until the next time. Cheers. <laughs>